If you would open your Bibles to the book of Lamentations, Lamentations chapter 1. Father, we seek you this morning. We seek you in the pages of your word. We seek you, Father, in the lamentations that we are working our way through, desiring, Father, that you would speak to us through the word. We pray, O Lord, that you would give to us a, a more of a realistic understanding of sin, the weight of sin, the seriousness of sin, that you give to us, Father, a an ability to grasp the reality that judgment's a real thing. We pray, Lord, that we would be deeply affected by what is here. That we would be the better for it. Not only, Lord, that we would in one sense be more somber, but also, Lord, that we would be extremely hopeful. That there would be a, a deeper joy because we have a better understanding of what we have been saved from. We ask, Father, that our hearts will be burdened for those that we know and those that we love that don't know Christ. That we would recognize that though you are an incredibly patient God, there is a, a day and a time when the patience ends and there is judgment and there's accountability. So, Father, we pray that you help us to, to understand these things in a way that is beneficial to us and to others. And so, Father, as always, we are grateful that you've given to us your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Lamentations chapter 1. Begin reading in verse 20. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now, let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you. And deal with them as you, as you have dealt with me, because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many, and my heart is faint. One of the many things that we're learning from the book of Lamentations is this. Lamentations teaches us that when God's people abandon him and depart from his word, tragedy inevitably follows. That would be on a national level, community level, family level, individual level. I think we sometimes fail to understand that when we are not dealing with our sin, when we are not repenting, there, there are consequences. Those consequences is more often than just maybe being in trouble at a moment. We remove ourselves from the place of blessing. We fail to recognize that when we look at our lives now, the job that we have, the ability to provide for our family, the family life that we have, perhaps the joy and happiness that we experience together, 
and all those things, if all those things are going well, I hope you recognize that that is happening because of the blessing of God. It is a blessing of God that those things are happening. So we need to recognize then that when it comes to the sin that we harbor in our hearts, that, that when, we, when we fail to live up to what the Word of God says, no matter how minor we may think that it is, and this is where it becomes very difficult to try to discern in one sense what is the hand of God on us where God is purposely and willfully withholding his blessing. But I think what happens is too often we never consider that. That if there is turmoil in your family, if there is tension in your relationships with certain people, perhaps at least part of the cause Maybe that God has removed his hand of blessing because there's things in your life you're not dealing with. It's not that God is somehow ticky-tacky and just trying to mess with you because of... No, God is serious. He wants the image of his son formed in you and in me. And he wants us to recognize the seriousness of sin. And that the seriousness of sin and the consequences of sin is not in how we determine what it is or how serious it is. It's on God's evaluation. And God's evaluation is never incorrect. I think here when you read this, this is, the, this is what I got from this. When I was reading these verses, these three verses, what, what jumped out to me was that Jerusalem was missing the point. It can appear at a quick reading that they were getting it, but I don't think that they were. The city was greatly distressed because of the calamity that had come upon it. That's true. And they do mention here that, well, you have brought the day you announced, and it's from God. He says, all my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you've done it. So they know, so again, there's, there's a recognition that God is doing this. But I think the next several words after the word announce. Now let them be as I am. It's like what they're focusing on is, they're happy I'm going through this, they're not suffering, you need to make them go through what I'm going through. They've missed the point. It's kind of like sometimes when our kids get in trouble, they might be crying. I say it was my kids, so I'm punishing Jeremy. And Jeremy's crying. He says, but what about Josh? He did it too. That may be true. It's a separate issue. We're dealing with you and what you did wrong. It doesn't matter what he did in this conversation with you and me. I'm not punishing you for what Josh did. I'm dealing with you for what you did. And your concern about him not being in trouble lets me know you're not getting it. And that's what happens. It's human nature. It's wrong, but it's human nature. It seems then that their distress was worsened, not because of their sin that had caused it, which again was its rebelliousness against Yahweh. I mean, they even acknowledge it here, but it's just a statement. There's no real sense of it, I think. The streets and houses have become places of death. They were standing empty. And again, Jerusalem's enemies have heard of her calamity and they were rejoicing. 
And so the city wished that God's predicted judgment would fall on the enemies, would fall on them soon, so they would become like Jerusalem. Jerusalem asked God to consider the wickedness of these nations and to take vengeance on them for their treatment of her because she was weak and groaning under divine judgment for her transgressions. Now, we don't have to worry about that. God sees all. And he holds everyone and every group in account for their sin. But what he wants is for you to grasp what you have done. And when we're concerned about those things, we are not thinking on the right thing. There's, there's an inherent selfishness in there. there is, it's almost like when they get what's coming to them, it's like, yeah, you're making fun of me, now you ain't getting yours. And all we end up doing is to them the same thing they did to us. They are mocking us all while God brings down his judgment on sin. Francis Schaeffer, in his book called The Death in the City, makes several comments that I think are appropriate for what we're looking at here in these verses. Because again, remember that in their rebelliousness, what the people had done is they had abandoned God. And so he writes this, First, people had abandoned God. It was not that they ceased to believe that he existed but they felt that he was irrelevant to their lives. This was true of the pagans generally, but it was also true of God's people. Normally, in any particular culture, what marks unbelievers also marks believers. So what we oftentimes see that's true in the culture we live in is often what's true of us. We can get upset when so many in our country, all of society, it seems, lives their lives if God just doesn't matter. God does not weigh heavily on them in any way. And too often, it is true of us as well. Those of us who believe he exists, those of us who believe that God is a serious matter, yet God seems to weigh very lightly on our conscience, if at all, sometimes. We just live our life the way they do in that sense. For the Jews, temple worship had become formal and unsatisfying. I do think, to a degree, because I don't know how much, because there's been this thing going on now for 30, 40 years in churches where there's been kind of a, an unrest about worship. They want worship to be more. I'm not always sure what that means. I, I think some people think they want to be more, they want to be more fulfilling really have a question about what that even means for them. But I do think that maybe the lack of satisfaction has got nothing to do with the service and what goes on in the service. God has become irrelevant to our lives. And so we begin to look to the service to be something else, to be more fulfilling because it's more entertaining. Now, it was someone here who told me this story. I don't remember who it was. But they were talking about a friend of theirs who was invited to go to another church. I won't say what the church is, doesn't matter. This person who was invited uh, to go to church hadn't been in church for like 20 years. And so when that service ended, they were all going back to their vehicle. The family that invited this individual said, what did you think of the service? And his reply was, Man, that's the best show I've seen in a long time. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I would have been really depressed if someone said that was the best show that I've seen in a long time. Because that's not what a service is. I'm not saying there may not be, I guess, some entertaining aspects to it, but that's just not the thing. 
You know, it's not. That's what happens. That's where the unsatisfaction comes. And so the religious leaders then were catering to the people's desires because, again, this idol worship that was going on that they were now being punished for took place in Jerusalem as well and sometimes in the temple. So the religious leaders were catering to the people's desires rather than confronting them with their, their disobedience. Jeremiah was definitely the exception to the rule. And so sometimes pastors, leaders in churches are confronted with this wanting to, I guess, meet the desires of the people without evaluating maybe what the desires are, and you can get in trouble. I get, I get advertisements through the email, normally, because if it comes in the mail, I just chuck it. But I email, I, I look at it, and there's all these ideas and suggestions about how you can wow the people. They don't always say it that way, but some do. So they come back wanting more. And that's enticing. Like, well, I want people to come back wanting more. My idea is I want them to come back wanting more of the Bible and more of God and, you know, that thing. But, but that's not what they're talking about. And so there's this, this catering to our fleshly desires. It's, it's what it ends up being. And we, we try to find a way sometimes to make it, kind of dress it up in a way that it doesn't sound so, so secular. Like, oh, well, you know, I, I, we really need to improve our music so that people really feel closer to God. Well, what kind of music is that? I know this. Gregorian chants can make you feel closer to God. We don't do that. That might be a cool thing to do every now and then. But I know that there's a, there's a place, I think, in England. There's, it's an abandoned castle. But it's kind of famous now uh, because um, of how it echoes. And so people flock there, and, there, and there's like several hundred I guess that, I, I, I don't know if it goes on every week or every weekend, but hundreds go there, and they're given these sheets, and you're kind of taught how to do this. It's kind of like a Gregorian chant, but you get several hundred people in there, and the way that it echoes off the wall, it's, from what I've, been, what I've read, it's a pretty incredible experience. If I ever go to England, I, I, I would jump in just for the heck of it. It'd be fun. But, you know, I, 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 I would not walk out of there saying, wow, I really felt close to God. Because if it's true, then you should move there, right? Be there all the time. But where people are looking for these experiences, and so these are fleshly desires. I want to feel in a certain way. And that's not necessarily sinful. I want to feel good. I want to feel close to the Lord. I want to feel all those things. But we're not trying to generate that in the flesh. We're not trying to create that. That really is more of a response to really the simple things. Come together, we sing, we pray, we read the Bible, we teach from the Bible, we pray for each other, we pray with each other, and then we go home. And we seek to live the life of the, of the Christian. We may call each other during the week to encourage each other. That's, and so we should respond emotionally to that. That should be the thing. But too often it's not. Secondly, and this kind of goes along with the first, when you abandon God, you also depart from the word of God. Francis Schaeffer says that people had departed from God's word. When people believe that God is irrelevant, they quickly stop paying attention to what he says. Jeremiah's contemporaries had neglected the promises of covenant blessing for obedience and punishment for disobedience. Most of the people had stopped reading and studying the Mosaic Law. This opened the door to ignorance of God's will and consequent disobedience and punishment. And that's what happens. We stop reading the Bible, we stop studying the Bible, the Bible begins to have, it no longer has a weight on us, our conscience begins to kind of wriggle its way free from what the Bible says, because we're human beings. This is what we do. 
And I was reading through, uh, I've been reading through the Old Testament in my Bible reading, and I came across this in a couple places, which I thought was just, I, I mean, I was aware of it, but I was, I had not really thought about it in a long time. One of, the re- one, of the, one of the duties that the king of Israel had was they were supposed to sit down and write their own copy of the law. And the reason for that is so that they would remember that they were to be submissive to the law of God. The law of the land came from God. It didn't come from the king as it did in other nations. See, in other nations, the king set the law. He was the law, and he set the law. But in Israel, it was different. The king had to submit to the law because the law came from outside. It came from God himself, handed down to them. I'm kind of lazy, so I've only thought about this. I've thought about what would the impact be if I had to sit down and write out for myself the book of Romans. I mean, on one hand, if you think about it, I know what the world would think. Why would you do that? It's already written. Just read it. And it's a tool to use because I want to get more of it inside of me. Maybe, maybe that would do it. I'll probably start with a shorter book like Colossians. <laughs> you know, you have a better sense of yourself. Well, I got that done. You know, that only took three weeks, you know. Romans might be a little daunting at first. But I still think that perhaps that would be a really cool thing to do. So, uh, of course, now, I haven't done it. And when I, when I do it, I probably won't tell you because that will sound like bragging, so I won't tell anybody. Uh, but, yeah, I might, I might maybe several years removed. But the idea is, is, is that maybe that's a good thing to do. God knows things we don't know. And God did not say, well, the king needs busy work. You know, idle hands. And so he needs to, no, that's not why God was doing that. It was for his heart and for his mind, for his maturity, for his ruling in the kingdom. And we don't want to be those individuals. Thirdly, this is what Francis Schaeffer then also said. He said, the people transferred their trust from God to inadequate uh, objects of hope, namely their political allies and the temple. And we covered that last week. Remember, there were were those who were thinking that because the temple was in Jerusalem and the temple was God's dwelling place and it was a sacred place, all these things that God is doing to Israel, certainly he won't let them happen here because this is where his temple is. Well, that was completely wiped out when the temple was destroyed by the Babylonian army. So rather than turning to the one true God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, for provision and protection, they chose to rely on what they could see and what appeared to be strong. So Egypt and Babylon appealed to them especially, but these allies proved to be unreliable and in the end, treacherous. And so we tend to do that. We may be putting our trust in ourselves. Well, we're putting our trust in our job, putting our trust in who we're allied with, who our, you know, who our friends are, or whatever it may happen to be. But we, we, that begins to be where we put our trust. And as a result, that can often lead to great anxiety. Because it's, it's not a solid place to put your trust. And so we need to recognize that weakness in ourselves to make sure we're not doing that. You, you may, you may, what you might be doing is, is because we all desire fulfillment and a sense of, of intimacy and belong. To, and so we may, you may do that with your spouse. You may, you may put all of your efforts in your husband or your wife. That's a very dangerous thing to do. Your, your husband and your wife, they're not God. They will never be able to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. It's unfair for you to put that on them. It's not that you woke up one morning and said, hmm, 
I think I'm going to begin to look for things only God can give me in my wife. We don't, we don't just one day wake up and say that to ourselves. But as we drift from God, as we drift from the word, we naturally begin to seek to fill those things in our hearts, those things that we desire from other people primarily. And, and if we have a decent relationship with our spouse, then, then it, it becomes much more in the wrong way. Now, I'm all for you and your spouse having a closer and closer relationship. That's wonderful, and that's how it should be. But we never seek the ultimate in them because they will disappoint. We're human beings. And so we need to make sure that we're not doing that because when you do that, you then are weakening yourself and your spouse spiritually. You're setting yourself up for a fall. A fall does not always mean that you're going to commit some grave sin. I'm not saying that you won't, but it's not necessarily that. Because too often what happens is when we hear that, well, you're setting yourself up for a grave sin, and you're thinking, well, I'm never going to commit adultery. So you think you're safe. I'm not saying you're going to commit adultery. What happens is, is you begin to enter, in a sense, into a spiritual wilderness. Now, I don't always know, you know, I can't always describe, and we can't always describe, there's not one way to describe what it means to be close to God. But I do think all of us can describe what it feels like to be in the wilderness spiritually where we don't feel God is there at all, that God is not hearing us. And I, I don't want you to be there. I don't want you to be there in life's most vulnerable moments when the unexpected happens and you are unprepared because you're far from the Lord. See, we can't be prepared for everything that's going to come along. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and next week and the week after. But one of the ways that we are prepared for those things is the growth and the maturity we have in the Lord. The same way that as we raise our children, we want our, we want our children to, to be mature. We want them to grow in their understanding of God. We want them to, to grow and be emotionally mature. Why? So that when, when bad things happen, which we know they will in life, they won't fall apart and throw a hissy fit. Because if they're on their own at 23 and that's their response to life... That's going to be embarrassing to them and most unhelpful in resolving any issues. So we can't predict what's going to happen, but we can prepare them for what's going to happen to a degree. And so when it comes to these moments where we, because we know, we acknowledge, we need God throughout every aspect of our life. The last thing we need to go, is to go through any kind of catastrophe and God is not there. We feel that God is not there because we're out of touch with him. When we begin to put our trust in other things, that's, what, that's just kind of the culmination of what's happening. And that's what's gone on with the people. Now, the theological message of Lamentations, it's not purely negative. There, there is hope. But sometimes we can worry about the hope almost too soon. Because we're still preoccupied with someone else who's not getting what they deserve. See, the hope is, and this is what's good. If God is ensuring that you are suffering, that you are being disciplined for your sin, then that means he cares. And hope is a very real thing. You know, I've, I've coached high school ball now for 40 years. And one of the things I've always explained to the guys that I coach, especially guys who aren't what we call the obvious starters, there are certain guys you can just tell, just they're, they're, because of their size, strength, and their ability, they're going to start. That's just it's clear. But it's the other guys who are hoping to get better because they also want to play as well. And there's several of those, especially at a small school. They're going to be able to play football. 
And what I've told them, no matter what their level of, of play is, that what they, what they never want to have happen is they go through practice after practice and I never pay any attention to them. Because sometimes what happens is, it's just common. You know, guys, when you're going through drills and there's kind of a line of guys, these guys are always hiding in the back. You know, they either don't want to get pummeled or get embarrassed or whatever, so they kind of hide in the back for all kinds of reasons. And so eventually, the coach will just let them. You know, they don't have time for them. And I tell them, I said, so if I'm getting on to you because you're not listening and you're not doing it right and I'm making you do it again and again and again, then what you have within you is the hope that you will play in the game because I'm giving you everything I have to help you to get better to do that. If I don't coach you and you're not starting, then you know that you'll, be, you'll, you'll have the best seat in the house for the game, for the whole game. Because you're never going to go in. And every guy who plays football, well, most every guy, there's actually some who don't, but most every guy, they want to get in the game and they want to play. And so when it comes to God and us, it's the same idea. If God is never correcting you, if God is not involved in your life in any way, then you're in a heap of trouble. And either God is just finished with you and you're going home soon, or you don't even know him. And so the hope that we have is built into this idea that God is active in our lives. And he is. So the hope that we have is not minimal in our life. It seems to be of minimal significance in this book, but just by its very nature, it is significant. In the heart of the book, when, you, when we do get to chapter 3, we will see that there is an expression of this assurance that God does not abandon those who turn to him for help. So these individuals who are caught up in the idea that, you know, our enemies are rejoicing and da-da-da-da-da-da, may it be done to them once they get over that part and they actually turn to God... He's the only one who can deliver them, and he's the only one who will. The lack of hope that we see oftentimes in these laments is in part, I think, due to the writer's view of the tragedy as divine punishment. In other words, the destruction has been so great that the people could not see, or perhaps they had forgotten, that God's promises of a future beyond the conquest was there. Similarly, when Jesus' disciples did not remember the promises of his resurrection because of the tragedy of his death, they were, it overwhelmed them. Remember again that when uh, Jesus was crucified, where were the disciples? Except for one, they were hiding. And when Jesus was buried, where were they? They were hiding. They were. They were afraid of what would happen to them. When they went to go visit the tomb, it wasn't the men who went. They were hiding. It was the women. They went. When did the men show up? Only after the women basically went back and said it's safe. I mean, in a sense, it's what they say. Well, we went there, you know, so you're not hearing anything about the guards, and, um, you know, Jesus isn't there. And then even then, only a couple of them went. And they went racing off to go see for themselves. If you would, turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, I'll be reading in verse 19. As you look to embrace the truths of these three verses and lamentations more firmly, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, it reads, For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Very simple, basic principle of uh, human nature. And this is true for us as believers. 
whatever overcomes you is not overcoming you because of some outside power. Whatever overcomes you, whether you want to call it an addiction or you just have a problem or whatever it happens to be, you will become enslaved, whether it's to your thoughts, to actions, feelings, a combination, whatever it is that you're looking for, whatever that's going on in your life that you're, you're trying to find satisfaction apart from God, you become enslaved because you are submitting to that. Verse 20, of course, Peter here is talking about false teachers, but what is true about them is true for anyone because they're human beings like the rest of us. For if, verse 20, after they, that they here is referring to uh, uh, false teachers, if they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. So he's explaining a little more detail, the seriousness of this, that when you come to Christ, whether it's a genuine conversion, or let's just say it's, it's, um, it's, it's not a genuine conversion, but the person's becoming religious, there are some good things that can still happen to that individual. You, you escape some of the dirt of the world. Your life will become better morally, and, and the consequences of life do improve. But then he says, but if you do all of that, and then you get entangled again, he says it's going to be worse than before, and then he says, there's certain statements in the Bible that I think are, should be the most troubling and chilling passages of all the verses. Verse 21 is one of them. Because this is, was preserved by God for us to read. So about that person who escaped and became entangled, it would have been even better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. I don't know about you, but that does send chills up my spine. And I immediately look back at my life because, you know, we all, we all commit sin. And we all commit sin maybe every day, probably every day. Yes, every day. And I ask myself, am I this person? Am I this individual who's becoming entangled? Where God would say to me, that it would have been better for you to have never known the way. I don't like that. And I don't think you would like that either. Can you just imagine the weight of that? To say that, you're, because we know that if you never hear the gospel of Christ, we know from the scriptures, you still ought to be judged for your sin and going to hell. We won't get into that whole discussion later, but just so you know, yes, it is fair. Yes, it is right. God does nothing wrong. But now for these individuals to be told that it would be better for you to have never known it. Just like he said, what did he say about Judas? Better for that man who had never been born. Good night. Now that's one of those things when you read by yourself, you feel weight. You feel heaviness. And then he gives them this example. He says in verse 22, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. The sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. I know that can be kind of gross, but we know that dogs do do that. And that's because it's a dog. And that's what they do. And he says, that's what we're like. You always turn back to your true nature. Your true nature is revealed. We should be terrified of that. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So while you're sitting there, if, if you are maybe even thinking this might be you, the, the sin in your life may be this situation where it seems like 
you're becoming overwhelmed or overcome. You're not dealing with whatever you know you need to be dealing with. Again, it may not be a grave sin on the scale of public sins, but that is unimportant. Because even if you are overcome by a small sin, uh, or what we would call small, does not mean that there are no consequences in your life, because there will be. And that's not a threat. It's just that's how sin works. But he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, remember there was a man that was caught having physical relations with his dad's wife. And Paul came down hard on the Corinthians because they basically tolerated it. No one ever bothered to even talk to them. They didn't deal with it. They just let it go. And he said, pagans don't even do this. But apparently that individual, I believe, was confronted. That individual was kicked out of the church. And this individual, I believe, repents of what happened. And so he says in verse 5, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So Paul is writing, this individual has experienced pain, emotional pain, he's been embarrassed, just all kinds of things are going on. This individual has repented, he has felt the weight of it, and Paul says, what's happened is enough. And so now that it's enough, it's over, you have an obligation. You need to forgive and comfort. Not forgive and ignore, because he's now stained and dirty. It's forgive and comfort. And Paul's concern, which would be God's concern, is that the individual not be overwhelmed by now too much sorrow. So you see, when we experience sorrow over God's discipline, God is concerned with that. Again, in the same way that if you punish your child for something that they really did, and it was even serious, you still don't want them to be overwhelmed with a sense of sorrow. You want them to experience sorrow. You want that. Hopefully you want that. You want that because you want there to be deep change in their life. But you're not going to just leave them in their sorrow for days and days and days. What, what, what do we do as parents? We, we're going to hug them. We're going to let them know that we forgive them and that we what? We love them and we comfort them. That we're still going to feed them. They're still a part of the family. And even though we're disappointed, it's not going to remain that way. And so that's what God wants. God is not just running around wanting you to feel really bad, and that's just it, tough, hope you can get over it. God is concerned that we're not overwhelmed with sorrow because it goes in the other direction. And so that's why Paul then says to the Corinthians, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. It's just a good principle to use that if you ever had anything, any kind of conflict with another person, any You've had a conflict with any other individual and it's now over behind you. You need to make sure you reaffirm your love for them. That's very important. Whether you hug them, whether you call them, whether you shake their hand, invite them to dinner, it doesn't matter what it is. You want them to know that you're not holding that against them. And that's good for you and for them. Because it helps us not to hold that against them. Let's them know that we are truly over it. We are now moving forward. We're not, when you do that, you're not pretending that what they did wasn't serious. You're not doing that because you've forgiven them. 
Remember that it's so serious, the only way <coughs> that the relationship can be repaired is by forgiveness, which is something that God himself has given us to do, and a gift that God has given us and the ability to do. That's, that's how serious it is. It requires a godlike intervention, which is what the exercise of forgiveness is. And then in moving forward to bring about that healing that God is concerned about, and also uh, to make sure that we are both not negatively affected by this in an ongoing way, this needs to happen. I'm not saying you need to become the best fishing buddies. You might, but I'm not saying that. But you need to reaffirm your love to that individual. And so Paul begs them to do them, to do that. That's why in verse 9 he says, For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Because you see, when you've been offended by someone else, you may start thinking, well, I'm obedient to what God says, but they're not. I'm going to be obedient to God. I'm going to forgive them. But I'm not going to have anything else to do with them because they're in a sense, you won't say this, but they're beneath you. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You need to be obedient in everything. So the everything includes what? Forgiveness and reaffirming your love for that individual. So Paul writes, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for you are not ignorant of his designs. So again, there's two ways of handling pain or sorrow or sadness. There is ungodly sorrow. That's merely being sad or experiencing pain. It has no virtue in it. It is concerned with self. It is not concerned with God or with others who've been harmed. And it leads to self-hatred, self-pity, depression, despair, and death. But there's godly sorrow, which is what God wants. That's what God wants to happen in Israel, in Jerusalem, is godly sorrow. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, leads to what? Repentance. It leads to turning from sin to God, making restitution for wrongs, and resolving to act righteously. If nothing else, I think we can see the difference between the two, that one is a self-centered selfishness, and the other one is a repentance and turning to God. And so in the midst of discipline, punishment, whatever you want to call that, that's how we are to respond as believers. God wants us to experience the pain that he's putting us through. It's not a game to God. He's not saying, I wonder how much you can take. Let's see. That's not what he's doing. It's always for believers, corrective. And, and with Jerusalem, he wants them to repent. He is yearning for that. And he yearns for that from us as well. God is not interested in someone merely feeling sorry for having sinned. But what he's interested in is one's resolute turning from that sin and not doing it again with, when we are tempted in that way. And you know, we oftentimes will, will fail over and over again. But God does not give up on us because we belong to him. You think that God is going to be less committed to you than you are to your own children? How often will your child fail to obey you till you finally say, you know what, get out of my house. I know you're only nine, but it doesn't matter, I've had enough. <laughs> that, that never happens, does it? Because we desperately want them to get better, and we are, and we are. we're going to put up with it. We're going to put up with it again and again and again. And when they turn 12, and we go to bed, and we're crying at night because of what's going on, we're going to get up the next morning, and we're still going to make breakfast, and we're going to continue to pray for them and do what we can because we love them. And we're not going to give up on them. And even though there may be times when they get even older, where they may, when they're older, be put out of the house, you still love them. You don't want them to starve in the street. You're still watching over them. 
because we care for them. You're not going to give up. We don't understand parents who give up. And when the parent says, well, you just don't understand, you're right, and I never will. You think God is less committed to us than that? Then we've underestimated God. Or maybe overestimated how great we are. That's the hope we have in God. So perhaps if you feel that God is causing you some discomfort in your life, tension, irritability, things aren't going right, the good news is that God's involved. God knows what's going on. And there's hope. God is seeking to create a new godly sorrow which pleases him. And as it says in the Psalms, a broken and a contrite spirit, God will in no way turn away. How marvelous is that? That is the message that we as believers can embrace. And we as believers want to share that gospel message so others can have that as well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for your goodness and your kindness and your unbelievable patience. We ask, Lord, you would help us to learn those things that we must learn, that we need to learn. That, Father, we may individually and together experience great and deep and lasting joy. That we may truly rejoice in God our Savior when we are in the midst of troubles or when we are in the midst of great blessings. Pray, Lord, that as these things become much more cemented in our hearts, the Father would move us to want to share the wonderful message of Christ with others, that they too may have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that they may experience your great forgiveness, love, and your interaction in their life. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, you're not like us. Help us, Father, to be like you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.